from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric Espiotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I'm known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter. I am known as Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Saturday, the 17th of April, 2021. On this program, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up, people, and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But for now do me a favor, favor. Let me in here And we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a Alright, so I'm trying to do everything correctly here this is all very interesting to me um yeah uh i'm doing another facebook live thing here while also recording the syncast uh for release as a podcast and the audio connections are very interesting so uh, i'm trying to keep up with it and i don't know if anybody's watching yet because i can't tell on this thing and who knows what's what and i it's not at all clear what's going on so i have a dashboard here and there's graphics and video clipping and polls and questions and whatever. I don't, I don't know how it all works. Um, so anyway, I'm just going to keep doing it and hope there are people out there either watching or listening or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So thank you to everybody who is watching. Uh, I can't tell. Facebook's interface is not great. Um, yeah. So I'm just going to talk and hope that it's working. I wanted to get on the mic today because I've been watching this um, documentary about Scientology on Netflix, and it's very interesting. And those of you who have watched previous uh, broadcasts or listened to this in cast know that I got really into the Nexium documentary called The Vow on HBO. And I'm not trying to sell HBO or uh, uh, Netflix, by the way, I, you know, whatever. Anyway, so um, yeah. And so I spent some time last time talking about ontological security, which is the sense of who you are and what your purpose is and how an organization like Nexium provides a sense of that. Yeah, and gives you this total picture, this total package of like who you are and what it means to be you and all that stuff. So um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's fascinating because now that I'm watching the Scientology one, it's clear that Nexium just stole a bunch of its stuff from Scientology. And I, I knew that was probably true, but, uh, it's interesting to get that sort of support system, uh, confirmation. Sorry, my brain is moving very quickly and I'm trying to think clearly and it's hard. So anyway, um, yeah, today I want to talk about epistemological security, which is also something that these organizations give to people. And it's something that we're all looking for, right? I said last time that everybody wants ontological security. We want to know who we are. We want to know what our purpose in life is. And I said last time that nobody can tell you what that is. You have to figure it out for yourself. And you should be very wary of anybody who has a sense of ontological security that they're trying to sell you because um, that is, uh, it can be a recipe for disaster, right? Um, but we can't get ontological security on our own, really, most of us. We need other people for that. So it's a paradox. All right, so epistemological security is, uh, epistemology is one of the three branches. There's four branches, I guess, of philosophy. And I'm not an expert in it, so people who know about philosophy, correct me if I'm wrong. 
there's ontology, which is who are you and what does it mean? You know, how do you live in the world? There's ethics, which is like, what does it mean to be a good person? And what, what is good and evil? And the show, The Good Place, is really the sort of poster child for popular art about ethics in the 21st century. And ontology and ethics are pretty related. Um, then there's uh, metaphysics, which is like, what exists? What is real? That sort of thing. And then there's epistemology, which is what do you know? And how do you know it? And that's what I want to talk about today. Because the, the Scientology documentary, they talk a lot about how so much of being in Scientology means you buy these books that were written by L. Ron Hubbard and these packages, these courses, and you pay all this money in order to enroll in this system of like, um, you know, analyzing yourself and analyzing the world and Dianetics and all of that stuff. And it's a, it's an entire system, just a lot like the one Nexium has of, you know, sort of, it, it depends on what you want to call it, right? Some people will call it brainwashing. Some people will call it, you know, indoctrination or whatever. But regardless of what you call it, it is a system of giving people kind of a new way to think about how they think, right? So this question of what you know becomes dependent on the course of Scientology, or in the case of Nexium, it becomes dependent on that. Obviously, school systems train young people in epistemology. Like, this is what we know. This is how we know it. We give you a textbook and like, you know that what's in the textbook is correct. And that whole thing. Um, and, and I think we do as students a great disservice when we don't really get into this question of epistemology at any point in their elementary or secondary education. Because it's only when we get to college, so those of us who are lucky enough to go and study this stuff, that we start to really question this thing of like, what do I know and how do I know it? I didn't have formal philosophy training. I never took a class in philosophy, really. I, I'm an autodidact, as I am with many things. So, but it's a fascinating question. I love to talk about it with my students because it's such an important question, right? Because young people start digging through this stuff as soon as they're born, I think. I think that we all have moments when we're kids of realizing, like, wait a minute, this person's full of crap, right? Or like, what, what is this thing in, that they're teaching me? What, how do I know that that's on the level, right? These sort of basic things, yeah? Some of us rebel violently against what we're told, and we're like, ah, it's all crap. You know, in the 60s, people said, like, don't trust anybody over 30. Um, most of us go through much smaller scale versions of that kind of rebellion, right? And I'm very fortunate because my folks raised me with open minds and, and, and natural inquiry. And, and they encouraged me to like, yeah, find out for myself, go out and explore, um, the things that we're telling you and, and, you know, make up your own mind. And that really is what it's ultimately about, right? You have to make up your own mind, but we all trust somebody. Right. This question of trust is absolutely essential because, you know, we nobody does all. It, look, even if you do all of your own research, you're still trusting certain sources. Right. And that question of which sources you trust or not, like that's a deep question. And a lot of people don't really even deal with that at all. So, you know, people will watch MSNBC or Fox News or CNN or ABC News or PBS NewsHour or whatever it is. Democracy Now!, and, and, you know, you trust those sources to a degree or you wouldn't go to them, right? And even when you do trust a source pretty well, right? Like I trust democracy now, right? I trust The Intercept. I think that's a pretty reliable news source. But when Glenn Greenwald splits from The Intercept, then the question becomes, okay, who, which one do I trust about what happened? Because they have these two different stories. And so I thought I could trust Glenn Greenwald and The Intercept, but now there are these two entities and they're kind of at war with each other. So... That's that's that question, right? And if you watch the film, um, 
I can't remember what it's called. There's a movie uh, that's about sexual harassment and uh, sexual assault at Fox News, and it's very good. I thought it was very good. Charlize Theron's in it, and um, Glenn Close, maybe? Anyway, um, yeah, but it's a really good uh, movie, and it's, and it's an example of that sort of thing, right? Because here's the thing. Look, when we're in these institutions, whether it's uh, education institution or a church like Scientology or you know, a family, um, you know, there's kind of a totality of epistemology. There's this sense in which the, the institution is giving us a sense of like, here's how you know what you know, right? And if you're raised in a, a strict religious upbringing, like the Bible is the word, right? If it's a Christian upbringing, right? If it's a Muslim upbringing, they will tell you the Quran is the truth and the word. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a tricky question about like whether you believe or not. And epistemology has to do with that overlap of like, the objective truth over here and then your belief and then like when they overlap that's knowledge right what you what you believe overlapped with the objective truth and then the question is well how do you get to that objective truth and maybe there is no such thing as objectivity or whatever um but this question about who you trust is very important because i don't want anybody to trust me uncritically for instance right like take east timor a lot of people who hear these words or see this broadcast, if you know about East Timor, chances are you know about it from me because I talked to you about it in my class or, you know, I, I, I talked about it on the Syncast or whatever it is. And so the question is, like, how do you know that what I'm telling you is legit, right? How do you know that my presentation of the facts of East Timor are on the level? I could be biased. I am biased. Everybody's biased, right? And so, you know, part of the challenge for me then is like, how do I make sure I'm giving people a balanced perspective, but not just endlessly going on about like, here's my source for this and here's my source for that, because I have to be entertaining in some way, shape or form. Certainly you're not going to tune in for my good looks. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And I started thinking a lot about, you know, on this documentary about Scientology, there are, you know, people, and there's this woman, Leah Ramini, I think her name is. She's an actor and she um, got involved in Scientology. She spent like 20 years in the church and she was very much a proponent of it and a fan of it. And uh, eventually she saw some things that really horrified her and she started questioning things. And then she left the church and did it publicly. And now she's making this documentary with another guy who spent many, many years in the church. And, and they're kind of telling people stories about, you know, what they saw in the church and all this stuff. And it's interesting because in Nexium, you know, th that vow documentary, on HBO has all these stories about like people being, you know, they, they had this organization within Nexium called DOS, which is, um, you know, daughter, daughters of obsequium submissio, whatever. It's got some Latin name. And it basically was, it, they, 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 you know, you called your mentor master and they called you slave. Like it's twisted. Um, and, you know, at one point people are branded and, you know, the sex trafficking, there's a lot of salacious stuff going on with Nexium. Scientology doesn't have quite that same kind of outrageous content, you know, in this documentary, but there are people being beaten up by the head of the church, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, they keep saying on the documentary, like the church challenges this, the church disputes the way we were telling the story and all this. And that's, you know, okay, whatever. I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not saying anything about Scientology. I'm just, <laughs> I don't know anything about Scientology other than what's in this documentary. Don't come after me, Scientologist lawyers. But that's the thing is that there's a lot of psychological manipulation that goes into Scientology, apparently, according to this documentary. And they talk a lot about how, you know, 
again, it's your whole world. Like, and there are kids who are raised in this, right? So they don't know any other way of being in the world, uh, any other way of creating understanding and, and what to trust or how to know things. So their total sense of epistemological certainty comes from the Church of Scientology. And, um, you know, there are, there's barbed wire, there's guards, this whole idea of you can't leave. Um, that's something I'll return to in a second, but it is the type of thing where like, there's a lot of that psychological manipulation and intimidation. And at first when I started watching it, I was like, you know, well, that's not so bad. Like, you know, it's not that big a deal. But then I started thinking about it and they were telling more and more about how you're constantly being watched and everything you do, you know, there's somebody checking to make sure you're not challenging L. Ron Hubbard or whatever it is. And, um, you know, I started thinking about like putting myself in their shoes and like, what would it be like for me to be in that kind of constant surveillance, constant, you know, sort of intimidation zone. Um, and I realized how terrifying that would be, right? Like we have cameras in our classrooms at the school where I teach and like that kind of freaks me out a little bit, right? Because, and, 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 and even beyond that, like, you know, when we're teaching over Zoom and it's true in the classroom itself, like students could be recording things that I say, their parents could be right next to the computer while I'm teaching and they could hear something, you know, that's maybe a little sketchy or whatever. So it's a, it's kind of a strange thing for me to be teaching in a place where it's, um, you know, being under surveillance is, is a tricky business, right? So I started to realize that, you know, I would not want to be in that situation. And it is, it is terrifying for people to be living in this place where, you know, the threat and, and there's all this stuff with disconnection. And so, okay, let me get into this whole idea of like someone leaving, right? When you leave Scientology, you get declared as like an enemy, right? And there's this concept of fair game. That's what they call it. Where if you leave the church of Scientology, you're basically, you're, you're an apostate, right? This idea is that you've left and you are an enemy. So they start in with this character assassination. They start in with this harassment campaign to discredit anything you might say. And they show examples of this in this documentary. It's very interesting. It happened to Leah Romini. It happened to the sort of main guy that she's co-hosting this documentary with. And they talk about, you know, this dude, he, he lived in this neighborhood down the street, this house, this family put up a birdhouse. And he thought it was kind of odd, like how tall this birdhouse was. So he went to it. He opened it up. It was a camera, like watching his house. And it's not illegal because they claimed it was like, you know, watching the front of their house for security or whatever. And I mean, all these different steps that the Church of Scientology takes to like go after people who, you know, uh, step out of line, basically. And I started to realize that This sense of threat, this sense of psychological intimidation, of constantly being under surveillance, of character assassination, you know, I, I kind of think this is what every black person in America must feel like. Because the police presence, the police surveillance is a constant thing for black folks, right? We see videos all the time. The army lieutenant recently got pulled over and pepper sprayed and... For no reason, right? Dante Wright got killed because he had dangling air freshener or whatever on his car. So that sense, and, and that's the thing is that like, it's not just about the people who are killed by the police. That's the most egregious and horrifying example of this. But the, the point is that, you know, it, it washes over everybody else, right? Dante Wright said to people that he knew that he was horrified that this sort of thing was going to happen to him, right? And then it did. 
Um, and, and the trauma, the psychological terror that people must live with, you know, black folks in the U.S. have to live with this fear of like the cops. You know, every black parent has to talk to their child about like, here's what you do when the cops pull you over. And, you know, you know that it can't be enough because you don't know it's going to set off one of these trigger happy cops. And, um, you know, I think that it's very important for us to develop our radical militant empathy of putting ourselves in other people's shoes and asking ourselves, like, how must other people feel? Right. And then saying, OK, what can I do about that? Right. Because it's it's messed up. Right. When you pass a homeless person, you probably have, especially when you're younger, a natural sense of empathy for that person. Right. Oh, man, this person's living on the street. That's messed up. We have a lot of wealth in this society. Why can't we get homes for people? Well, we can. Right. But but we have kind of a nationwide society wide program of character assassination of homeless folks and it's oh they 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 choose to be homeless they're drug addicts they're you know mentally unstable whatever whatever uh, and they refuse to get help and so therefore you know they kind of deserve to be homeless that's the myth we have in this society about that right and a lot of white folks when it comes to these videos and the concept of police surveillance and over policing and mass incarceration we have the same mindset of like well you know that's the way it is and and those people in these videos well they're not obeying the, what the officers are telling them right they're not doing what they're told and so therefore, you know, as if that legitimizes it in any way, right? Person didn't obey directions. I don't care. They don't deserve to die, right? Jacob Blake did not deserve to get shot in the back five times, right? Um, and, and look, I'm sure a lot of people might think, well, you know, the officer didn't want to lose control of the situation. Um, and it's, you know, you don't need me to tell you a lot of it is people don't live in the neighborhoods that they're policing. And so there's this concept that they're like, you know, an occupying force and that the people that they're in the neighborhoods that they're patrolling are the enemy or whatever. Anybody could be a bad guy and whatever, whatever. But, you know, when you can't look, look at Dante, Wright Yeah. It was about tags, you know, the air fresheners dangling on the rear view and he was getting in the car and they're like, oh my God, oh my God, we can't let him get in the car. Like what he's going to drive over somebody or whatever. Right. But I mean, they had his license number, right? They, they could have followed him. It didn't have to be a life and death moment. Right. So even when she's reaching for her taser, like, why are you reaching for your taser? I don't get it. Right. I, I kind of do get it actually. Let me step that back because it's a matter of maintaining control. Right. And I'm, I'm a teacher. I've had classes where I felt like I was losing control and I've never, I don't think I've ever actually really lost control of a class in reality, but I've, I've been close and it's a terrifying feeling because you are responsible for the safety of those young people. And I'm sure these cops think I'm responsible for the safety of this community. And if this guy gets in his car and drives off, like he might murder somebody and then it's on me. Well, first of all, it's not. And look what happened. That mindset led to this woman actually killing this guy. And, you know, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a sucker. So I tend to give people benefit of the doubt. I sh maybe shouldn't do that when it comes to police, but whatever. The point is that, you know, if, if it was an honest mistake, let's just do it. If then situation, right? If this woman who killed Dante, Wright honestly thought she was grabbing her taser and people say like, well, you should have known it was a gun instead of a taser. Eh, I don't know. Like in that moment, like you, as a teacher, I know that sometimes my adrenaline has just been chugging in certain, I have students fighting or something. You're on, you know, boots from the coup said, I feel my epidermis at its firmest just before a skirmish. Right. That's what it's like in those moments. Like you're just tensed up. You, you're, you're kind of panicking. Your heart is racing. You're chugging adrenaline. Um, I think, uh, in fight club, he says, you know, my heart was beating kerosene or whatever. 
and and those moments, it's hard to tell what's what in your hand, right? Uh, so she should have looked to see, is this yellow or is it black? Because tasers tend to be yellow so in order to distinguish them. Um, but she was panicking, right? So, so, so my point is that, you know, in those moments, it's so important. She became a killer because she was worried about, presumably, again, giving her the benefit of the doubt. She was worried that this person was going to go off and do something horrible and it was going to be on her because I let him get away or whatever, right? But then because of the, that fear, you, you became a killer. You turned into something that you probably never wanted to be, right? And so this shows the value of confronting our fears on a regular basis and not letting our fears run away with us and recognizing the incredible power and responsibility that comes with being a servant of the public in any capacity, right? As a teacher, I feel this weight very heavily. And the last thing I ever want to do is hurt my students in the service of helping them, right? In the idea, the assumption that I'm helping them. If I accidentally or, you know, somehow intentionally inflict trauma or harm on my students, that's a big deal, right? And I feel like there are so many police officers who don't seem to understand or care about that responsibility, especially white police officers who are, you know, uh, encountering African-American folks. So I just thought it was interesting that, you know, this idea of, because look, when, you know, when Michael Brown was killed, yeah, in Ferguson, like the, the one of the things that we saw right away as soon as he was killed was this, you know, releasing of the security tapes. Oh, he stole a box of cigars or something, right? Like, and, and everybody would say like, well, that doesn't justify police killing him, but, and then it's all this stuff about like how he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have done that, you know? And, and so you can understand why the police would see him as like, you know, this scary thing. He's a super predator. He's really tall. The officer was small, you know, whatever, whatever. Um, but it is, you know, it, it's that, it's that character assassination. We see the same thing with the church of Scientology going after somebody and it's everything to do with this question of epistemology, right? What do you know about this guy who was killed by cops. What do we know about this young man? Uh, I can't remember his name. Something Toledo, Toledo, something. I can't, the one in Chicago, 13 year old kid, right? And like it, you know, uh, the idea is that we are creating a narrative about what you're, what you're going to hear or see, right? And the idea is that, you know, we, we who, hi, Jason. Thank you. Uh, you're the first comment. Uh, yeah. So, um, we are, you know, those of us who have some sort of power and control over the narrative are establishing something about the narrative that will affect the way everybody sees the stuff that comes later, right? Which is exactly what the Church of Scientology is trying to do, right? They, they don't really think that this dude who left the Church of Scientology beat his wife, but what they're doing is everything they can to discredit that person, discredit that person, discredit that person, so that the people in Scientology and the rest of society will look at them less favorably and therefore give the church the benefit of the doubt, right? And that same dynamic is at play when we, you know, hear about, oh, this person had a warrant or this person, you know, they found drugs in the car or whatever it is. The question should be, like, was it legitimate for this officer to kill this person? And in almost every instance, the answer to that question just by itself is no, right? But it be, it's not about that. That's not what the question is. The question becomes something like, you know, is the officer... Uh, you know, how scared was the officer? 
I'm sorry. I don't really care how scared the officer was. I really don't. I mean, I don't mean to be dismissive because I'm not a police officer. I wouldn't last one day as a police officer, right? I don't have the kind of courage to, to go into a place where there's violence and try to stop it, right? That's not who I am. Um, but, but I don't think that's the, the question, like how scared was the officer? Because, you know, look, there's a lot of people who are, are too scared to become high school English teachers, right? I say I'm a high school English teacher. A lot of people are like, oh, man, you couldn't pay me enough to do that. There, there are forms of psychological courage you need to become a high school English teacher. But when I go in every day, it doesn't matter how scared I am. I have a responsibility. I have a job to do and I do it and I do it well because I face those fears that I have and I power through them because I love my students. And that is what keeps me in check. That is what, you know, if I see a student maybe take a swing at another student, I don't start throwing desks at them. I don't grab a stick and start beating on the kid. I say to myself, okay, I need to de-escalate this situation, right? And I'm lucky because these days I, I teach nerds and I teach seniors and they're all just like, this class over with. Like it's, you know, I, I haven't written a kid up in 10 years and that's because mostly, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, people who want to be in the room or at least they're like, I need this elective credit, so whatever. I have a lot of great students too, by the way. I, I don't want to make it sound like all my students are just dead-eyed zombies. Like, Only about 90%. No, no, that's not fair. Uh, it's probably like 20%. But I fixate on those because my question is always like, why am I not getting through to that one kid who's not paying attention? And meanwhile, there's 15 kids who are eagerly paying attention and I'm kind of ignoring them, which is not fair, but that's my life. Anyway, my point is that you know, this question of epistemology, what do you know and how do you know it, is directly connected to this question about police brutality that we keep seeing over and over and over again, right? And by the way, it's also connected to this question of these gun massacres that are going on, right? Because every time they happen, it's so exhausting, right? And so many of us have just given up at this point, right? We see a massacre, we think maybe like, you know, oh, I should do something to try to stop it, right? And, you know, thank you to anybody who's involved in, you know, Moms Demand Action or, you know, uh, taking on the NRA or, or whatever you do to try to, you know, get some sort of sensible gun control legislation passed. I've, I've taken those steps, you know, I've done things to try to get Congress to, you know, do something about gun violence. And it's the guns. Like, I'm not, in case you don't know where I stand on this, like, it's the guns, okay? You can't have massacre after massacre after shooting after, you know, cop kills unarmed black teen. Uh, you know, you can't have these things happening every day and be like, well, it's not the guns. Of course it's the guns. Come on, the more guns we have, the less safe we all are. Period. Period. We need fewer guns. Period. Okay. That's, that's the answer, in my view. I mean, this is my opinion, obviously. The more guns we have, the less safe we all are. And I don't like feeling unsafe like that, okay? And Bill Hicks has a great bit where he says he was in the UK and they have, you know, 14 deaths a year from handguns. And in the United States, you know how we feel about guns, 40,000 deaths or whatever. And, you know, a lot of them are suicides. So how about this? You're, it's not the guns. It's not the guns. Okay. You really care about, and you, maybe you're like, oh, whatever, you know, don't do the crime, can't do the time, whatever, whatever. But if what, do you, what about all these people who are killing themselves with firearms, right? Victims of suicide because of firearms. It's so much easier to successfully, you know, for, for suicide to become successful, quote unquote, with a firearm than it is in other methods. And we shouldn't be making it easier for people to become victims of suicide. So, yeah, 
Um, but, but, but that's the, so how does that connect to epistemology? Because again, like the NRA's job is to just muddy the waters to say it's all these different things. It's character assassination on the notion of, well, we ought to have fewer guns, right? That's the last thing the NRA wants. And I probably talked about this before on the show. So I I mean, whatever, I'm going to say it again. There was a documentary I saw where, uh, they, they were interviewing this guy who ran a gun shop gun store where you buy guns, right? And there was this new technology that had a ring that you wear. And if you're wearing the ring and holding the gun, the ring and the gun are linked somehow. So if you're wearing the ring while you're holding the gun, it'll fire, (laughs) you shoot whatever you want. You don't have the ring. So if the gun gets stolen and they don't have the ring, they can't use that gun. As soon as you put it on the shelves, these gun right nuts went ape crap and they boycotted his store and they threatened to shut him down. And he almost had the store shut down. Because he was just selling it. And it wasn't the only gun he had. It was just one option among 700 options. But they saw it as a threat. It was a threat. Just like the Church of Scientology sees people as a threat. It's a threat. And that jumping to, well, this is is an existential threat, right? That's the scary part. When people see a different idea or a different concept or a different technology as an existential threat. This is a threat. Because then... What the Church of Scientology does, the fair game doctrine, that's what everybody follows because it's you're justified in doing whatever you want because, as it says in the crucible, they held in their hand, they believed they held in their hand the, the their steady hand, the candle that would illuminate the world, right? This idea that you have the truth and, you know, anything else that's different from that, it's a threat, Right? And this is why epistemology is so important for all of us to think about and reflect on and to study and to interrogate in ourselves. How certain are you of this candle you're holding your hand? And what is it you'll do when you find something that contradicts that, right? Because I'll be honest, I love it when people challenge me. I really do. Like, look at the Syncast history, right? I talked to Richard Webster and he said a lot of things I disagree with. I talked to Greg DeLacy and he said a lot of things I disagree with, right? Even my best friends, like, you know... Garrett Crowell, like he, he went off. We, we had a screaming argument after Starship Troopers, right? But that was fun in a way because it's a way of interrogating that sense of epistemology. It's a way of getting to the question of like, what, how certain am I of this? And, you know, we were young. So like we were, and we were both like really headstrong. It was, you know, unstoppable force and immovable object time for both of us. Uh, <laughs> and so that, that's why it was such a, you know, painful confrontation uh, at the time. And now that we're older, we can look back on it. And be like, eh, I may have been wrong. I may have been wrong, whatever. And that's one of the beautiful things about becoming an adult and getting older is you start to realize like this thing that I did was kind of stupid. Right. And, and, and it was funny, this connects to something that happened in a classroom recently, because I don't remember what we were even talking about, but it was something about, um, what kids do online or something like that. And they were like, ah, cringe. And I said, you know what? Look, I actually, I don't have a lot of respect for the concept of cringe at this point in my life because, first of all, we've all done a million things that are cringy, yeah? And I think that as a society, we, you know, especially the online ecosystem that we live in, is so fixated on attacking anything cringe, right? Oh, cringe. Oh, you're so cringe. It's so cringe. Ah, imagine. And that's the other. Imagine. If you don't know, the way young people talk today, every sentence starts with imagine. 
right? I was just playing Rocket League with a bunch of people and every sentence was imagine. Imagine waiting this long to play a game of Rocket League. Imagine complaining about waiting this long to play a game of Rocket League. And I said, imagine starting every sentence with the word imagine. And they were like, imagine trying to be funny, but starting. It's, it's such a weird way to communicate, right? Because it's, it's, it's a finger pointing thing. It's this way of ridiculing folks who, you know, think a little differently than you, right? Or live a little differently than you. And, and, and it's all based on like, I'm going to make fun of you because you're cringe, right? And, and I think that that's not healthy because it says that you're not allowed to be cringy. And if you are, you should immediately become ashamed of yourself and run away. And KYS is the joke online so often. And if you don't know, that means kill yourself. And it's a horrible thing for people to say to each other, right? Especially once you lose someone to suicide, like it's not funny ever then. Cause then it's like, that's not cute, dude. You're not being funny. You're not being edgy and like hardcore. You're just being a jackass. And you're making fun of the kind of pain that someone like me feels when we lose somebody to that way. So um, this whole notion of like, oh, that's so cringe. That's so cringe, you know, but it's, but it's also part of a larger trend in our society of having a kind of like total backlash as part of your ontology, right? So this idea that like, well, this person is trash or this person's a monster or that person's evil. Now, I'm not the type of person who claims that that's never true, you know, so we jump right to like Hitler, Osama bin Laden or Ted Cruz or whatever. Uh, I'm not trying to equate Osama bin Laden and Ted Cruz, by the way. Okay, I know that obviously (laughs) Ted Cruz is a lot worse than Osama bin Laden, but that's a joke as well. Anyway, um, but no, this I, I do, th- you know, Sarah Schulman wrote a book called Conflict is Not Abuse. And it's an interesting concept because, you know, she was struck by the fact that some of her friends would have these disagreements with her. And they had this attitude that like, you know, I, I can't be friends with you or like I'm cutting off this conversation because there was this, you know, difference of opinion or whatever it is. And again, that's what Scientology does. It's all about isolating people. And, and making it seem like these are the stakes. You can't, you know, communicate with people who have this other perspective. And I just don't think that's healthy. Now, I know that that's a privileged position for me to have, right? Again, if I were, you know, let's say I were a trans black woman, for instance, right? I, it's not so easy for me to be like, well, I'm going to engage in a marketplace of ideas with people who hate me because of my skin color and because of my racial identity, because of my sexual identity or whatever. Um, my trans status or, or what have you. So, okay, that's granted. That's true. But I also think that, you know, and, and, and that speaks to the power differential, right? And, and we have to attack that always and recognize that it is a state of privilege for me to say, well, you know, let's have these conversations. Let's confront this. Because there is a point where for some folks, like you have to draw a line and be like, look, I need to take care of myself. And that means building a wall here. And like, you are not allowed through this wall. So piss off. Right. And if you're a troll online, you know, I need to deal with you. Right. Absolutely. I'm not trying to dispute that. But that's that may be like 5% of the cases where human beings are kind of cutting people off. And I think for the other 95% of the cases, it's just you know, people who have the psychological capacity and the, you know, wherewithal, and they don't have this need to protect themselves in that way. And they just choose to, to see the world in much more simplistic ways. We oversimplify everything, right? So when we see something, you know, even a hashtag that we disagree with, we, we're ready to pounce. We want to, you know, score points ourselves by attacking this thing that we disagree with. And I just think that that leads to 
a lack of nuance, a lack of conversation, a lack of, you know, ability to say, well, you know, I disagree with this, this, and this, but I do agree with you on that. And if you heard my conversation with Greg, you know that at certain points in that conversation, despite all the things that we disagree on, serious, profound things that we disagree with each other about, there's still some points of common ground. And I think that those are important to find. Not because then we ignore all the stuff that we disagree with, but because we can't build if we don't have some sort of foundation, right? You can't build anything unless you have a decent foundation, right? And when we uh, all have our own facts, when we all say like, well, I'm not even going to engage with people on this side of the world or this side of the argument or whatever, then we can't build anything as a society and things just, you know, kind of crumble. And I'm not even necessarily talking about American democracy. Like I like American democracy. I think it's relatively pretty good. Problematic though it is, you know, for California to have two senators and then have 10 other states with the same combined population as California and they have like 40 senators. Come on. That's ridiculous, right? But I guess 10 states would have 20 senators. There's a reason I'm not a math teacher, as you know. Um, but, but I do think that, you know, when we talk about saving the planet from ecological disaster, we have to be able to build toward the prevention of that, right? And it has to start with the truth. We have to say, okay, here's the truth about what's going on, right? And the truth is we have to consume less. There's something nobody is saying. I haven't heard anybody say that in a long time. We all have to consume less, less energy, fewer resources. We have to drive less. We have to, um, you know, cut down fewer trees. We have to consume fewer cell phones and computer chips. Like all of us need to. And I'm guilty of this too, right? Which is why it's not just a matter of individual choice. It's a matter of social structures, Right. What is Verizon and what are Apple and Microsoft allowed to get away with in terms of like what they sell? Right? Because we could have computers where you just swap out part of it. And then that makes your computer better, faster, stronger. Work it, Daft Punk. But we don't want that kind of regulation because regulation bad, you know. And don't get me started, by the way, on Amazon's busting of the union in Alabama. Oh, what a disgrace. Uh, Jason Powell wrote a comment. Oh my goodness. There's all these comments. I didn't realize there were all these comments. I'm sorry. I didn't miss these comments. I missed these comments. Uh, she got involved when she should have stood and watched phenomenal message. No more echo chambers. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Nick. I agree. And like, you know, it, yeah, it's, um, so, so, so the, then the question, again, I, I want to bring this back to us because it's it, part of it is that we all want to, you know, comment on the things that other people are doing. And I think it's very important for me to constantly ask myself and for each of you to constantly ask yourself, like what, and I know Nick is here probably because he saw epistemology. Oh my God. Yes, I'm giving you a shout out, Nick. Thank you. Uh, it's rare that I have students get excited about things I talk about. So when you got all excited about epistemology and tell your brother, I said hi, by the way. Anyway. Um, oh, and speaking of which, by the way, I haven't mentioned my hat. This don't ask hat was a gift from a student many years ago named Adam Root. And if you're out there, Adam, I want to talk to you again, man. Holler at me. It's been too long. We need to chat. Uh, I miss you. I miss talking to you. So uh, holler at your boy. Anyway. Um, yeah, the, the, the question is like, again, you know, like, what do I know and how do I know it? And how am I going to regularly interrogate and examine my assumptions and 
the things that I believe to be true without just giving up and saying like, well, nothing is real. I don't know anything and we can't know anything because that's nonsense. And the thing about teaching high school is as soon as I start talking about this stuff, you know, and I say like, you know, is this table? Is this a table? I don't know. You know, and I make fun of that notion. Ricky Gervais had a thing about, you know, you being a first year philosophy student and you go down and, you know, you say to somebody who's studying math, you're like, yeah, this table's not real. And they're like, what? He's like, the table's not real. And then he hits your head against it. It's like, is it real? Can you feel it? Can you feel that? Is it real or not? And his beret falls off. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's what it is. And a lot of the students that I've talked to about this stuff, like they say like, well, maybe it's not. I think we're living in a simulation. To me, th- th- that's a problem with that sort of like, basic level of analyzing this stuff is because it's so tempting to have that attitude of like, well, nothing's real. How do you know anything's real? I don't care. That's, that's academic. It's, it's, it's meaningless, right? It's, it doesn't really have any impact on our lives. And there are things we should be working on that do have an impact on our life, like preventing an apocalypse of the climate. That's something we need to be working on. The Uyghur human rights situation. Like, oh my God, all the concentration camps and forced labor of the Uyghur people in China. Talk about something that needs our attention. Like, I feel like that's the East Timor of this moment. And I ought to be doing more things about it. We all should be doing more things about ending the suffering of the Uyghur people in China. And if you don't know anything about the suffering of the Uyghur people in China, maybe I'll make that the next syncast. I don't know. I don't know enough about it, though. I'm not an expert in that like I am about East Timor. So I can't tell you all about the suffering of the Uyghur people in China. I know that it's real. I know that we need to do things about it. And we can. Interesting side note about that. I was looking into it this week and there's a piece of legislation that says the United States should not be buying anything made with Uyghur slave labor. Like, duh. Like, that sounds like a great piece of legislation. Why isn't this already passed? It was introduced by Marco Rubio. Oh my God, I agree with something Marco Rubio is trying to do. Holy crap. Um, It's because it's coming from a communist country is why. If it were coming from a capitalist country, he probably wouldn't be too bothered. But um, yeah, and Mark Pocan hasn't signed on. Tammy Baldwin hasn't signed on. I'm like, what the, what? Why aren't y'all co-sponsors of this already? So anyway, um, yeah. So, But that's proof that we can do things about the suffering of the Uyghur people in China. So this question of epistemology is important, but it, it should never become academic, right? This is the problem with learning a lot is that it's so easy to get sucked into a rabbit hole of just that thing, right? No matter what it is, right? There are people who get sucked into computing rabbit holes, right? PC gaming. And I got to constantly get my, you know, graphics card better. And I'm going to memorize all these details. And here's the latest card. And and here's this thing. And, you know, people do that about music, right? Oh, here's the releases that are coming out this weekend. And, and, and here's the last thing that this person said on this date. And blah, blah, blah. people do it with sports, right? Oh yeah. Statistics, this person's ERA and they had this many. Blah, blah, blah. And I love when students are like, you know, oh, I'm just stupid. I can't, you know, pass classes. I'm no good at school. And then, you know, you start talking to them about like the last NFL season and they're like, well, this person had this statistic. And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, you are very smart. Well, my point is that, you know, we devote a lot of our mental resources to those things that ultimately aren't really that important to our lives. They're interesting. They're fascinating, right? They might be our passions. And that's cool, right? You know, one of my passions is science fiction. And okay, so I read a lot of it and I write a lot of it. And I know that, okay, it can provide interesting windows to the world and it can be useful as a way to think differently about our own lives and stuff like that. But ultimately, it's just fun to fly around in a video game where you're on a spaceship, right? Or whatever it is. Video games aren't, you know, they're, they're not really that important. They, they serve purposes, but 
they're ultimately they're not you know that's not I don't I, when I die I don't want people to be like he played a lot of video games man he was pretty good at Rocket League not a grand champ or anything but he was you know he had fun and he he did pretty well I want people to know that I helped to build community that I taught people that I was trying to raise the level of consciousness for the entire world as Saul Williams says in his song Coded Language because to me that's what's really important so it's imp- it's necessary for us to distinguish between you know the things that are fun or that we're passionate about or that are exciting to which we can devote some of our attention obviously that's fine but when that's every waking minute or your the majority of your mental energy goes to those things that's not healthy because it's not just that you know you could be building your mind better but it's that you have a responsibility to the rest of the world to try to prevent the ecological catastrophe from happening or, or you know, end the suffering of the Uyghur people in China. And it's so much easier for the rest of us to take action on those things when lots of people are doing it, right? So I kind of wandered a little bit as I always do in these discussions. Um, but I want to give some shout outs to people who have been showing love. Um, first of all, to the Duchess, as always, uh, now and forever, uh, to my mom, to my brother, uh, to Garrett and Shay. Um, to uh, everybody who's watched Jason and Nick uh, for commenting on the live Facebook feed, uh, to everybody who shows love on Twitter, um, Tainted Brain and um, Filthy is always a big supporter, and I really appreciate that. Uh, anybody who's retweeted, I'm probably forgetting names here because I don't keep track, and I should, um, but, but I see you, and I appreciate your support of what I'm saying and doing here, and I hope it's useful for me to be babbling about this stuff because I think it's really important and I try to present it in a way that's entertaining and whether I'm successful in that or not, well, you have to let me know. And the fact that people do retweet it suggests that yes, I am. Hooray. So I'm successful in that sense. Um, yeah. So I I think that's everything I wanted to say. Uh, thank you for your attention and your interest and the comments and the uh, retweets or the sharing or whatever. Please do share it around. Uh, I don't really care about liking and subscribing or and all that stuff. I mean, I, I appreciate it when people do it. But that's the other, let me say this one last thing. You know, one of the reasons Scientology has grown and expanded so much over the last 50 years or whatever it is, is because there's this mandatory buying of L. Ron Hubbard's works. And then you also, if you're in the Church of Scientology, you don't just have to buy those books for yourself. And it's thousands and thousands of dollars worth of books. You're supposed to buy sets of these books to then give to libraries so that people can access this stuff anytime they turn around. So it's another example of how money and, you know, specious authority spreads this stuff instead of it being the best ideas. Right. And so as somebody who is, uh, you know, I'm an anarchist artist, right? I, I don't want people to buy a book of mine because they were kind of urged into it or they guilted into it or whatever, you know, like even people that are close to me. I don't want you to read something I've written just because I'm your friend and you owe it to me to read this and tell me how awesome it is. I want you to read Delivery to Nimbus X because you're interested in a cool adventure story in, in space. So, but that's the thing is that once you give up, you know, the idea of like marketing basically, which, you know, I don't market my stuff very well. It's just me blabbing and spamming my own stuff on, uh, you know, the internet. Um, once you give that up, then it's very hard to get noticed in the world because everybody else is constantly bombarding the world with advertisements and marketing and targeted, you know, subscribe and like, and making accounts for themselves to like big themselves up and all this, you know, and you can't trust any of it. So I'm not interested in any of that. Right. And, and as a result, 
I feel like my work doesn't really go very far, right? What I want is some company to say, this guy's work is amazing. Let's promote it. But then I think that money shouldn't be going to me. It should be going to fight homelessness or something. So I'm in this weird position in terms of like, I want to promote myself, but I always feel bad when I do because, you know, my scribbles aren't really worth all that much. Uh, so yeah, that's a lot of thoughts about a lot of things and I'm just repeating myself now. So I'm going to stop talking. Thank you all so much for listening or watching or whatever you do. And I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Sometimes I'll say something here at the end of the show, and then, uh, yeah, people feel uh, justified in waiting until after the end credits there. And uh, not today. I'm not saying anything after the credits. I'm just going to end the recording.